My name is Harrison. I'm the associate pastor here. I'm grateful to be with you guys and um, bring in this story from Acts uh, to you. Um, when I was a kid, my first uh, high school, college football game was a Carolina game at the Wake Forest Football Stadium. I'm a Carolina fan, and I was pretty young at this point. I don't remember, maybe six or seven. Um, and I was dressed in my Carolina gear, and I remember walking around and noticing something I'd never experienced before. There was two groups, people in mostly black and gold everywhere, and then some white and blue like I had. And there was, I noticed aggressive chanting back and forth, uh, jeering at each other, booing, mean looks, uh, tension. Um, and I realized as a little kid, I don't know any of these people, but I have enemies here. People who don't like me, uh, not because of me, but only because of who I've chosen to associate with because of the colors I was wearing. And here's another thing I thought about as a kid. I was like, we are very outnumbered uh, here. And I was actually pretty nervous about that at the game of what was going to happen. So like the phenomenon I felt in that stadium, and I'm sure you guys have felt, uh, Jesus makes clear to his followers that the fallen sinful world in rebellion to God often views and treats Jesus' followers as enemies. Not because of you, but because of who you have chosen to associate with. If you wear Jesus' colors and follow Jesus' commands, you will encounter people in the world who treat you as an enemy. Persecution is a word for this phenomenon, and it's the topic of the passage in Acts today. And persecution biblically is the enemies of Jesus uh, reacting in a hostile way to the servants of Jesus because of the servant's connection to Jesus. An important qualifier that I feel like we need to mention here is that persecution is not us as Christians making enemies as a result of our misbehavior and disobedience to Jesus. Um, It's like me pouring my Coke on a Wake Forest fan's head at the game and then being like, well, you're just mad at me because I'm a Carolina fan. Um, No, he's mad because he's got sticky substance all over his hair and clothes. Um, Persecution instead is having Coke poured on your head over and over simply because of the colors you're wearing Though you've done nothing wrong and are responding in a totally loving way, only showing goodness back and they're still pouring coke on you, that's true biblical persecution. Persecution is someone who treats you as their enemy only because of your obedience to Jesus, you wearing his colors. And so in our passage today, we saw Herod, the Roman-appointed leader of the Jews, he lays violent hands on the church. He has James killed, and then he notices that this pleases the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had always been against Jesus. Um, So he arrests Peter to be killed as well. And this is the same Jewish leadership and Roman leadership that conspired together to kill Jesus are now conspiring together to kill Jesus' followers. And Jesus had actually promised his disciples this would happen. Uh, In John 15, he said, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus promises his disciples to the extent that they follow him in their lives is the extent to which they should expect to be persecuted. And this is coming true in this passage. This topic would have been very applicable to the original audience of Acts uh, who were heavily persecuted. They often found themselves in exact situations like Peter does here, getting arrested. Uh, This passage is also very applicable to Christians in 80% of the world's countries, which according to Pew Research Center have governments that 
in some way interfere with a Christian's ability to worship and serve God. Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Iran are the top most dangerous countries to be a Christian in, where you certainly could get arrested and killed for your beliefs. We live uh, in one of the 20% of countries where our government generally does not interfere with us being Christians, and often I take that for granted. Um, It's a huge blessing that we can gather here freely right now. Uh, None of us are going to be arrested today because of our connection to Jesus or coming to this service. That's not only unusual in our world today, but it's also very unusual in world history. I'll say that it's also not guaranteed for your future. Uh, Our hearts need to be prepared for this kind of governmental persecution, which is the more of the norm in world history than what we're experiencing now. But though you may not be arrested today, this passage is still very applicable to people at Hope Chapel and myself, and, and here's why. There are many other kinds of persecution besides being arrested many of which you likely have experienced. One would be being looked down upon. Um, You're just really outdated and simple-minded, aren't you? Social exclusion. No, we don't want you coming to the party. You'll probably just be judging us for what we're doing there, and you, you wouldn't really like it anyways. Maybe mocking. I can't believe you're waiting till marriage. That's hilarious. Maybe reviling and slandering. You're probably against science anti-women, anti-progress, aren't you? No other Christian may have done anything wrong to the people saying these things. You may not have done anything wrong to those people, but you're being reviled in these situations. Why? Jesus tells us it's because you identify with him. And to the extent to which you identify with Jesus is the extent to which you will experience this kind of reviling. So here is the temptation that we face in persecution whether that persecution looks like being arrested and killed or it looks like just being disliked by a coworker, the temptation is this, that we are tempted to deny Jesus to avoid persecution. If I just don't identify with Jesus in public, this one time, this would all go away. Imagine me taking off my UNC colors at the Wake Forest game. What would happen? Uh, No more jeering, no more chanting, no more evil looks. No one would know where I stood. For us in America, I think this often looks like our silence and conformity to those around us when we are called to be different and to bear witness. It looks like us being silent and fitting in with the world as if we have nothing new to share. It's having a lot of relationships where we're just loving someone but never actually taking the step to tell them the truth. It's us sadly being committed to above all not obeying God but being committed to not causing discomfort and awkwardness for us or others. And others may not even know we're Christians because every time it matters, we're hiding our jersey. And so I wonder how much persecution have you and I faced this past year? And if the answer to that is not much, could it be that you might put Jesus away when any sort of persecution or discomfort might arise because of him? If you're saying yes to that somewhat, as I do, the good news is God knows that we struggle with this, that I struggle with this, and he gives us this passage this morning to teach us to stand firm in our Jesus colors when persecution comes. He teaches us to wear the jersey proudly in the midst of Satan's stadium. He gives us three truths to carry with us into the stadium to encourage us to stand firm. So here's the three truths from the passage. In persecution, God shelters his people, God strikes down his enemies, 
and God spreads his kingdom. Shelters his people, strikes down his enemies, and spreads his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, you know, um, as was mentioned earlier, we are but dust. Um, We're scared, Lord. Uh, We don't like um, risking relationship. We don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like being mocked and slandered and left out of things. We want to fit in. Uh, But Jesus, we know also that you've called us to not fit in. Um, And that there's going to be a a reckoning if we do that. And we just ask, Lord, that you would help us this morning by your spirit. Teach us how to stand firm uh, in those places. Teach us how to be your witnesses and ambassadors on this earth. Um, Lord, we know that that will get us some negative consequences uh, in relationships with people. But it also, Lord, will bring us closer to you and manifest your kingdom here. And so teach us how to do that, Jesus. pray in your name. Amen. So the first, first thing we see in our passage is God shelters his people. So think of, thinking about shelters, uh, I lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, two years after they had had a massive tornado come through the middle of the city and the college campus, uh, killed 64 people and injured 1,500 more. And I heard tons of horrific, traumatizing stories about this tornado from so many people being there. And let me tell you, during the three times I was there, the, three, the three years I was there, the tornado siren went off a lot. And when it did, it was not like usually how we respond here. Everyone was very serious about seeking shelter. Um, some shelters I learned were not that good. Uh, the Starbucks and the Union with glass walls all around, not a good place to be. Uh, people would look down on you for being there. The, the bathroom in the middle of the student union was a better place, but still not ideal. The building itself is not as strong as it should be. Um, but there was a basement classroom uh, that was uh, in a building with concrete walls, basement deep underground. Um, the building's been there for forever, is going to be there for forever in the future. Um, that, was, that was the best place to be. An F5 tornado could be coming over on top of you, and you have no idea it was even there. In our passage, uh, Peter gets arrested and faces the tornado of capital punishment. But what Herod doesn't know is that Peter walks around in the most ideal shelter, a thick, impenetrable concrete basement, and the shelter's name is the Holy Spirit. Look with me in verse 6 of our passage, if you have it in your bulletin. Um, Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, meaning about to bring Peter out to kill him, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries, before the door regarding the prison. So the emphasis here is on how hard it would be to break Peter out. Two soldiers are sitting next to him, two different chains binding him, two soldiers at the door. And the contrast with that then with how easily the Holy Spirit shelters Peter and also how little Peter contributes to his own uh, getting out and protection. So verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Just fall off. No explanation. Also, no explanation at all. Doesn't even mention the two guards sitting next to him. What are they doing? We don't even know. Doesn't matter. They're not interfering, that's for sure. Verse 8, the angel says to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And so he does that. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real and thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter is basically half asleep this entire time this is happening. He has, he's got no idea what's going on. Uh, verse 10, they had passed the first and second guard. They came to an iron gate leading into the city. So again, they just walk right past these two guards when they passed them. 
Uh, no explanation. These guards, by the way, their life depends on them keeping Peter in there. They get killed for uh, letting him out afterwards, and that was a normal Roman procedure. And it doesn't even say, so how do they let him out? We don't even know. Peter walks right by him. They come to an iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. Just open, no problem. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left them. When Peter came to himself, when he finally wakes up fully, he says, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all of the Jewish people who all that the Jewish people were expecting. So so again, Peter's half asleep. He all he did was put his clothes on and walk out, and it's clear that none of the chains, the guards, the doors are remotely a problem for the Holy Spirit. They don't even get an explanation. And when he returns back, the rest of the church is shocked in disbelief. They think that the little servant girl reporting that Peter's there has gone crazy. This section of our passage is a reminder to the persecuted early church that the Holy Spirit is an impenetrable basement that no pain or suffering can access unless God himself allows it. God is saying, you are sheltered under my wings. I have your very hairs numbered. Not a hair can fall off, not a tear, not a drop of blood can fall apart from my will. And no amount of chains or guards or doors or armies will stop me and my purposes. If I want Peter out, he is out. No questions asked. So God shelters his people. This passage is not meant to communicate that God will always choose to free you from persecution like Peter. Remember, James is killed actually at the beginning of the story. So it's not saying you're going to miraculously escape every uncomfortable situation that arises, but it does mean two things. First one is, if you step out in faith, if you wear your Jesus jersey, God might miraculously make the outcome way better than you expected because that's often what he does. When you think about the Bible, God is very much in the habit of sheltering his people who step out in faith in the midst of persecution. Remember Israel obeying in the midst of persecution by the Egyptians and God miraculously parting the Red Sea for them, sheltering them. Remember the little runt David who steps out in the midst of persecution from the Philistines and then God fells the giant in front of him. David chops his head off. Remember uh, Daniel obeying in the midst of persecution in Babylon and God protecting him in the lion's den. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego obeying in the midst of persecution and God keeping them cold to the touch in the midst of a fiery furnace. All those people stepped out in faith in the midst of persecution and they're miraculously sheltered. And God gives us those stories because he wants you to know that he has your back. Especially when you step out in faith for him. This gives us enormous confidence when we go into uncomfortable situations. Your father God rules the world. And that things might go better than you think because of that. And so try it. Uh, that's the first application we get is confidence to step out in faith. But second, uh, if the outcome for you is not miraculous deliverance, then it's only because God has willed that persecution for you. Uh, if God has the amount of power displayed in this story, he is like the 800-pound gorilla in the joke, uh, what does the 800-pound gorilla in the room do next? And the answer is whatever he wants. Uh, God's power must mean that when you suffer, God himself has chosen to let that suffering touch you. And because God is good, then that suffering must be for your good. But you might be wondering, Harrison, what possible good can come from uh, being killed here like James? Uh, well, Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted, happy are you, 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So Jesus might want you to have some eternal rewards. Maybe that's why you're experiencing some persecution. In another place, Paul says in moments of persecution, we get to share in Jesus' sufferings. Remember, Jesus was abandoned by everyone on earth at the end of his life. But when you are abandoned because of your identification with Jesus, you have access to the abandoned Jesus that no one else had. You get to share with Jesus in that moment. What intimacy is offered to you in those moments of suffering? And so one answer, why does Jesus let persecution in? Maybe he wants to be closer to you. And that's how, how he does it. And so though we suffer, we are in fact still sheltered by God in those moments. And he's letting that suffering into the shelter for a good reason. And even in death, like James here, uh, we are still sheltered by God. In the New Testament, we know at the moment of death, James's suffering ended and he was called home to the eternal shelter. He woke up in the most secure basement imaginable, a place where tornadoes don't even exist. Peter goes back into suffering, but James is better sheltered, arguably. Uh, he goes into glory. And if you can grasp how truly sheltered you are by God at all times, in life, in suffering, in death, and even after death, that no matter what, neither rulers or powers or principalities or death itself can separate you from the love and shelter of Jesus, what could possibly scare us away from stepping out in faith? So take heart in persecution, God shelters his people. And that gives us the confidence to wear his colors in Satan's stadium. Now oftentimes, in the midst of persecution, our obedience to God means not lashing out or seeking revenge from these enemies of God. It's turning the other cheek. It's heaping up coals of goodness on our persecutors. But if you're in the Ukraine right now, uh, you might be wondering if your church has been destroyed, your house burned, your whole family mutilated and killed, how am I supposed to turn the other cheek? And that leads us to point two. Take heart because in persecution, God strikes down his enemies. Now a concrete wall, we were talking about with the shelter, it can shelter you really good. It can also break your skull if you run into it hard enough. And that's what happens to Herod. Look, look in verse 20 of what, what happens to Herod here. Um, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On, the, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So the idea here is Tyre and Sidon relied on Judea for food. So they needed peace with Herod, the king of Judea, to get that food. So they decide to flatter him in hopes of restoring peace. This is a story actually attested to as well by a non-Christian historian, Josephus, who says that Herod was addressed by flatterers in this moment who said, uh, according to Josephus, may you be propitious, favorable to us. And if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. Josephus' quote is pretty much the exact same as Luke's, which is the voice of a God and not of a man. And Josephus says Herod accepted their flattery and was seized by violent internal pains and carried into his palace where he died of illness. Some people think it was appendicitis, something else, but the Bible thinks the cause is unknown, doesn't matter. The main reason is God will not be mocked and struck Herod down himself. 
in the, in the movies, uh, there's something called the self-disposing villain trope. Uh, this is when the protagonist does not need to kill the bad guy because the bad guy basically gets rid of himself uh, because of his folly. The bad guy might fall into the very trap he himself set for the good guy. Uh, and through the villain's death, justice is served without the good guy having to become a killer. And the Bible actually has this very theme all throughout it. But I would change the name from the self-disposing villain trope to the God-disposing villain trope. Uh, so remember Haman, uh, the bad guy in Esther, who makes a 75-foot gallows to hang Mordecai on. And then Haman himself gets hung on that gallows at the end. The God-disposing villain trope. Remember Pharaoh's army chasing the Israelites into the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh and his army actually get swallowed and drowned by the very sea they were trying to put Israel into. Remember Saul, uh, who fought to throw a spear into David. Remember, he's always trying to spear David. Um, uh, and ends up getting surrounded by Philistines and falls on his own sword. Or Goliath, who with his strength taunts uh, the God of Israel and comes up with this challenge. And then gets uh, felled by a runt in his own challenge that he created. The God-disposing villain trope. These are not random occurrences in scripture. Uh, but God himself striking down his enemies causing the very evil they created to come back on their own heads. The Bible claims this trope exists in our world today, and it exists in eternity. And this is so freeing for those who are being persecuted because it means you don't have to seek revenge. You don't need to become like those persecuting you. You don't have to do what they do to you back to them. You can turn the other cheek, even heap up coals of goodness on them. Why? God will strike his enemies down so you don't have to. This is what the imprecatory psalms are for. Uh, these are psalms that Israel would sing to God for uh, his enemies to fall into the very traps they created for Israel. That they would have their evil return back to them. That Israel would plead with God to do that, to bring justice. Oh God of justice, do not be silent. If you have experienced a grave injustice in your life and it went unpunished, the only thing that keeps you sane is believing in a God of justice who will not forever be silent. Wait long enough, and he will strike. And so we can take heart, be strong and courageous in our love, our forgiveness, our forbearance, because we have an 800-pound gorilla behind us who, if he sees fit, will strike down his enemies on, his, on the spot in this life or in the next life. Now, I need to mention, God has two ways of striking down enemies in Acts. The first one you see here with Herod where God takes back the life he gave to someone. They die in their sin and enter into eternal separation with God, which is from eternal separation from God, which is perfect justice from a life lived, willfully spent opposed to God and to his people. It's an eternity of the same, which according to Jesus involves a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a terrifying reality for ourselves and anyone we know, which we have to avoid at all costs. But there's another way that God strikes down his enemies too. Uh, a much more preferable way, which is what Chris told us about earlier in Acts uh, with a guy named Saul, uh, an enemy of God. God struck down Saul by kicking him off his horse, humbling him, showing him truth, and turning him into a friend. God got rid of an enemy by, as Paul would say himself, putting to death the old man and making a new creation in his place, a friend of God, born again of the Spirit, with a heart of flesh rather than of stone. In fact, the Bible would say all of us who believe in God now were previous enemies of God, like Saul and Herod, who deserved actually the death that Herod gets here, 
but we're shown mercy instead. We're kicked off our horse, humbled, and we're reborn as friends of God. And the reason that this is just, that God can do the second form of, of knocking us down is because Jesus took the punishment that God's enemies deserved instead. So this means we can especially take heart in our forbearance of God's enemies and our turning the other cheek and our heaping up coals of goodness on them because we were enemies too. We're previous enemies turned friend. We want to act towards them like Jesus acted towards us. Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. Humble them and bring them to know you like you did to me. Show them the same love and mercy that you showed to me. Now, whenever I mention loving God's enemies or our enemies, uh, I always feel I should mention that this love does not mean you should become a doormat, that you should remove necessary boundaries you have to protect yourself from destructive people in your life. Don't hear me saying that you should run back into a relationship with someone your counselor already told you is not good for you to be in a relationship with. Loving God's enemies is not naivete. Rather, loving God's enemies means praying for their repentance, not seeking personal revenge against them, actively doing good when possible towards them, and trusting God with their judgment. So these are the two ways God has of striking down his enemies, both of which free us up to take heart in loving our enemies in the midst of persecution. So we see in persecution God shelters his people so we can confidently step out in faith. God strikes down his enemies so we can confidently love and forgive as we do that. And then lastly, you might be tempted to think um, sometimes persecution hurts God's kingdom though, right? In fact, that's why I avoid it sometimes. I avoid conflict and relational distance and mocking because it's not good for God's kingdom. And this leads us to our third point. Actually, in persecution especially, God spreads his kingdom. Look at, look at verse 24. So we saw James gets killed, Peter's in prison, Herod's calling himself a god. But, verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Uh, so in my house, we inherited a green plant uh, that attracts hummingbirds. Uh, it grows over this trellis over the summer, like a six-foot trellis. And this green plant is um, aggressive. Uh, so it, it grows up, and then it reaches across and starts working into the siding and all the, all the holes in our house trying to get inside. It covers all the bushes and plants around it, like big bushes goes inside and covers them up. Um, and so one day I decided I need, I, need to, I need to do something about this. So I, I chopped off all this, kind of like this vine uh, branches of it and tried to contain it. Uh, put all these um, branches of the vine into uh, my little lawn garbage can, put it next to our driveway until, you know, that, that day of the week that you bring it out and put it on the curb. And here's what happened. Uh, everywhere that those branches touched somehow started growing um, that exact vine in all those places. So, so underneath where all that was, all those bushes from the ground, it starts coming up. Next to our driveway where that garbage can was, there's little holes in the garbage can at the bottom so the water doesn't stay in there. That starts growing it. Even on the street, the concrete in between the cracks of the street, this vine starts coming up. Uh, it's crazy. Um, I don't know what it is. Someone, someone needs to tell me what it is, but it's a, a vine plant. Um, so it, it, uh, it spread more rapidly, not in spite of being cut down, but because it was cut down. And trying to eradicate it actually ensured its domination. God designed his kingdom the same way he designed that plant. Persecution cannot stop his kingdom. In fact, it does just the opposite. Early church father Tertullian famously said, the blood of martyrs is seed. The blood of martyrs is seed. 
the word of God increased and multiplied because James was killed here. All of the disciples besides John are eventually martyred, and their deaths were the most powerful and effective witness they could give to the truth of their claims, that they wouldn't renounce them even in the face of torture and death. And this means the refrain from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 50, is also true of Acts, that what God's enemies meant for evil, God purposes for good, to the point to where everything works for the good of those who believe, even our own persecution. And the cross is the ultimate example of this. The most extreme persecution from Satan and all of Jesus' enemies gathered together to torture and kill the Son of God. A moment that seems like final victory for Satan, right? A moment that seems like the end of this movement for Jesus' disciples. And that very moment was by far the greatest advancement of the kingdom in history. The kingdom exploded not in spite of Jesus' death, but because of it. In trying to eradicate the kingdom, Satan actually ensured its domination. Jesus' death and resurrection proved that especially in persecution, God spreads his kingdom. And that means for us, persecution is not a distraction from your work as Christians. It's actually the very center of it. It's the place where God does his most meaningful and best work. Persecution is where God's kingdom and the kingdom of the world collides. And his kingdom actually grows in that collision. And this means that when you try to fit in by taking off your Jesus colors, that doesn't help God's kingdom and actually works against it. Jesus said, I chose you out of the world. I don't want you to fit in. Instead, he wants you to obey boldly and speak truth and get uncomfortable and then take shelter under God and his love for you and pray for and forgive those causing discomfort for you and then wait for God to do some of his best work in that process. And maybe even, like Saul, turning an enemy of God into a friend of God. In persecution especially, God spreads his kingdom. So take heart, and let's confidently walk into some discomfort this week. Amen.
So in Joseph Smith's King Follett sermon, Joseph said that he would refute any idea that there is one God in all eternity and that people could become gods themselves. He just flat out says that. And that each one of us has the capability of becoming a god of our own planet. These are not things that are set up front by the Mormon church. So you talk about that GPS direction where you punch in, you might have similar terms, and it looks like we're going to end up at the same place. Similar terms ending up at two different places. Jesus is also the offspring of God, of our, the God of our planet and of one of his goddess wives. Satan and Jesus are brothers. So Jesus and Satan were both created beings. Well, how are you saved in Mormonism? Well, you're saved uh, by faith and works. Both of those things put together. That's how you get salvation. So in the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi, uh, it says, For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. It's that little clause on the end there. Which is a twisting of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our justification with God is by faith alone, by grace alone, right? Now, works because I was just texting with a Mormon friend the other day. A lot of times they bring up James, you know, faith without works is dead. They'll, they'll, they'll go there a lot. And, uh, you know, in the end, you have to be able to hold the tensions that the Lord puts in his word. The reason why faith without works is dead is because there should be some fruit of the faith that you have on the inside of you. So if you don't have any Jesus-like things coming out of you, well, then that shows that the faith on the inside is dead, that you don't even have it. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins, maybe. So to, to claim that as, oh, you need faith plus works, well, then that totally negates all the passages that talk about faith alone is what justifies you before God. So do you see that they'll take, uh, this is what false teachers and false prophets do, they may even take an aspect of truth and overemphasize that and raise that really high, but that's to the detriment of the other things that God is teaching, to where we need to be able to hold these things in tension together. And those two things put together is the straight path that God is making. Overemphasizing one makes the path crooked. Okay, lastly, this one may hit home a little bit more for some of us. Um, as parents or grandparents, we need to be very careful about the kind of gospel, about what it means to be a Christian that we display to our children and grandchildren, okay? One thing that can be very easy for us as parents to do is that we can uh, try to raise our kids and emphasize things with our kids that is so behavior-driven so much according to Christians do these things and don't do these things. And we're totally trying to manage them according to their behavior. Anybody ever fall into this as a parent? 
You're trying to control them according to their behavior. And so the, the thing that we communicate to them, even maybe by how we talk about the Lord or talk about what we do as Christians, what we communicate to them is actually a false gospel. Because we're saying, this is what Christianity is like. This is what Christians do. They do these things and don't do these things. When really the whole point of Christianity and what it means to know Jesus is that we can't keep the do's and don'ts. That's why we need him to die for us. So there, there should be a sense of uh, humility that we show to our kids. We should be telling our kids the true gospel. We should be uh, pointing them to issues of what's going on on the inside of them because it's very important. This is what, what's going on on the inside of us is most important to the Lord. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what matters is what's going on in here. Now, should we still point our kids in good directions? Should we still discipline them? Should we still tell them about morals and behavior? Yes, we should. But we need to keep pointing them to the gospel. We don't want to become false teachers to our children, which can be a very subtle thing that we do over the course of raising our kids in our home. So may the Lord help us in that. Well, lots of other kinds of false teaching that we can go over. There is no hell. Overemphasizing the grace of God. Universalism. All religions are basically the same. The Bible contains the word of God, but is not entirely the word of God. If you've heard any of those and you don't know what they are, we'd love to talk to you afterwards about them. But like we started with, with the kids singing, Hosanna, on Palm Sunday, people were shouting Hosanna, which is save now, save us, to Jesus. They were shouting to the right person, weren't they? They were shouting the right thing to the right person. But they had different reasons for why they were shouting. One of them was that some of them wanted to be saved from Roman rule. And Jesus' own words of how he taught and led did not match that. So that would have been a false teaching at the time, wouldn't it have? And so on Palm Sunday, today, let's shout Hosanna to the one true Savior and let's desire his saving work for the reasons that he said that we need his saving work. To pay for our sins on the cross so that we would be right with the God who made us when our faith is in him and we love him and follow him, right? So Hosanna, save us now, Lord. Amen.